the British, the British dream. Below our expectations. We're about to be an all country. We're about to be a country. Wonderful to be here. The British dream podcast. Join us, powerful people, as we launch up despicable acts like these and the sickening and barbaric politics. What I hate about this Get up in your face. is that it's so violent. When the next phase of this disaster comes, they will come for you. Hello, and thanks for joining the British Dream, Vice's politics podcast. My name is Simon Childs, Home Affairs Editor at Vice.com. In case you hadn't noticed, the British Dream will be coming out every two weeks now, so stick it on your to-do list to subscribe. Recently on Vice.com, we ran Hate Island, a special report into the state of the UK far-right. Discussing his work on the British Dream this week is journalist James Poulter, described by my boss as an encyclopedia of hate. Hi, guys. I'm um, also joined by Sing Sing from Broadly. Hiya. And Henry Langston from Vice. Hello. I think it's important for all those in positions of responsibility to condemn far-right views. Try to calm down. I'm not supporting these people. And behave like an adult. We spent a week on Vice.com talking about waves of Nazi terror, racist meetups, and stupid outright media personalities. But right now I want to get into the darker, stickier stuff. What's the future of far-right politics in the UK? How are Donald Trump and Richard Spencer connected to some Nazis ranting in a West London hotel room? But first, how big a deal actually is the outright in the UK? President Trump has used his Twitter account to share inflammatory videos which were posted online by the deputy leader of the far-right group, Britain First. So I guess over the past 10 years, we've had quite a lot of stuff to talk about with the far-right. The British National Party came and went, the English Defence League came and went, and you could have managed to stumble through more leaders than Leeds United. Still, it's difficult sometimes to figure out what impact it's all had. So, James, do you think we're watching a far-right surge? Not really, but also yes. Mm-hmm. It, it's like the BNP sort of got nearly a million votes in 2009. And that's sort of the best a far-right political party has ever done in the UK. But they're pretty much finished now. Mm-hmm. So it's like electorally the far-right are done. Uh, but that's largely because the Tory party is like, you know, or the hard-right of the Tory party running the country. Mm. So it's like, if you want to vote for a far-right political party, you just vote for the Tories. So like the fact that Theresa May is like a prime minister who is, as Home Secretary, obsessed with cutting down on immigration will sort of take the winds out of the sails of any like seriously extreme far-right electoral project. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the only sort of far-right party that looks like they might achieve anything at the moment is Poor Britain, mm-hmm. um, Anne-Marie Waters' party. But they're just campaigning around Islam. It's like they've not really got any policies other than sort of kick Muslims out of the UK. So they're kind of a diminished force uh, in terms of electoral politics, but it sort of feels like we're hearing a lot more from them than maybe like 10 years ago, seeing a lot more from them. Yeah, I think the far right are noisier on the internet than they have, they have ever been before. Like I've been monitoring the far right online for over a decade now, and I can't think of a time when they've had as loud a voice as they currently have. Um, but that's... They've not really been able to translate that into street activity. It's like that there was a wave of far-right street activity sort of from the foundation of the EDL that went all the way through to maybe like early 2016, sort of culminating with that five hours of street fighting in Dover and then a month later, uh, more rioting in Liverpool. <laughs> and it's like far-right activists are still getting jailed for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of them have been sort of the key organisers of the UK far-right <laughs> have been jailed as a result of that. And it's like that, that wave of repression has sort of dovetailed into the wave of repression that National Action have felt. When National Action got banned, um, there have been a number of arrests. Uh, so it's like a, a lot of far activists are in prison. So street movements are like more diminished, as you're saying, and there's a lot more far activists in prison. But 
you, um, you know, we've seen like a normalization almost of a lot of different types of far-right rhetoric. If you consider yourself far-right or you hold those views, you probably think the Tory party is the one for you. You know, we, we might not have to worry too much about these groups on the streets, but they don't need to be on the streets because they're in politics and they're in the media. Uh, and I think I think a lot of the far-right sort of see Brexit as, as their victory, as their victory against what they think or what they hope to be some move against immigration, uh, less immigration in this country. So we've seen less street activity, but we've seen more far-right uh, terrorism. You know, we've had a group like National Action being prescribed. In the past two weeks, we've had two convictions of uh, two far-right terrorists, Darren Osborne for the uh, Finsbury Park mosque attack last, last year, and then uh, Ethan Stables, who planned to or alleged to have planned to attack a, a LGBT night at a pub uh, saying he wanted to murder the gay bastards. I mean, that mainstreaming of that rhetoric and that, as you were saying, like the sort of uh, confidence of the far right on the internet to talk more openly uh, and express their views is clearly having an effect and it's driving a rise in this kind of uh, terrorism. Yeah, I think if there's anything that success of UKIP has shown is that you don't need to be electorally successful or even in a mainstream sense respectable for your rhetoric to be wholeheartedly adopted by the establishment. I think you can definitely see that even though UKIP is is basically imploded, a lot of its effects have actually penetrated every single sector of society. It's in mainstream government politics, it's in mainstream newspapers, it's in mainstream political discourse now. And then the real question is, how do you get that poison out? You could simultaneously been like a laughingstock for years and undoubtedly the most successful single issue party in British politics ever. Exactly. So it's like, you know, obviously everyone goes on about, oh, you know, we're British, we use humour to disarm and like defang people. But obviously that's clearly not happened in the case of Nigel Farage and UKIP. So sort of probably not happening with the far right. So then what do you do about it? He's sort of now seen as almost like a respectable pundit on lots of TV shows, not only here in the UK, but in the US. He's got his own show on LBC. Like he's almost in, in a way completely mainstream. I think the point on sort of the lack of street movements, it's like, what have the far right gods protest against? It's like they yeah. think they're winning. Yeah. In terms of Nigel Farage as well, it's like part of the thing is that he's pushing at an open door, right? People can mock him for like saying things that are like one step too far or like too vulgar, but it's only in the minds of the right wing of the Conservative Party. It's only one step too far. It's only that he said it in a crass way. You know, he's a laughing stock, but he's just like pushing at this really open door. He's sort of held a fine line between like, he's not openly far right. He's, he's sort of pushed back against people that are openly far right. Mm. So he, he uh, stopped the uh, UKIP having um, an ele- electoral alliance with the BNP. They kick racists out of UKIP whenever they sort of are openly racist. So it's like, there's this huge part of the British like hard right that is doing everything it can to appear reasonable and respectable. And, and a lot of people in the media are facilitating that. Vile hate fueled organisation whose views should be condemned. Vice has been covering this sort of, you know, far right activity for quite a while now. But like there's been a sort of spike in interest around it recently with, you know, I think there's a lot of doom around the election of Donald Trump and his like proximity to some far right figures and que- questions over whether he is himself like a fascist, basically. There's Heather Hayer's death in Charlottesville at a far-right protest. Um, there was Richard Spencer getting punched in the face, which was a viral moment. To what extent is the phenomenon of the far-right in the UK linked to what's going on like over the Atlantic? The links are quite close. 
Some major figures in the US alt right are British. It was like Milo Yiannopoulos is from Kent. Like Paul Joseph Watson, who's involved in the conspiracy theorist website Infowars, is from Sheffield. So it's like British figures are sort of helping drive the alt right in the US. So that's on the more sort of like alt right level. But on the alt right level, it's like Richard Spencer uh, gave a talk at a traditional Britain group meeting. Steve Bannon had a meeting with Jacob Rees-Mogg recently try and talk about how they can make their sort of hard right ideas more successful what you're saying is like a lot of the key figures of what is kind of seen as the american outright are themselves british and then meanwhile the british right wing is learning from this kind of phenomenon in america at the same time so there are connections obviously uh but there are also i think differences i think you would really struggle to imagine seeing the sort of events that you saw in charlottesville sort of out and out neo nazi zeke heiling with tiki torches sort of marching down the street uh in a sort of way that i don't know like these permits for these yeah, i guess well, dover's a thing but like yeah, dover was big. nazis rioting it was like there were mobs of Nazis sieg hiding and then throwing Jack Daniels bottles and rocks at anti-fascists. But I guess there's maybe a difference in how there's, I think, less time for people like Richard Spencer here in the UK. Like these sort of neo-Nazi in massive inverted commas intellectuals sort of getting any sort of platform or having any sort of not necessarily mainstream appeal, but some degree of an appeal. Uh, obviously, it's hard to gauge that exactly on the Internet, but... Um, you know, he, he's a massive figure in the US um, amongst certain circles. Well, that's because the media have run a lot of articles about him and, like, they boosted his profile. It's like there are British figures that would love that level of notoriety. Oh, sure. Like people like Mark Collett, who's the former BNP youth organiser, who's got mm. a growing sort of Twitter presence. There's a great video of him on YouTube getting threatened by Nazis where he starts crying. <laughs> threatened by Nazis, not by, like, anti-fascists. What were the yeah. Nazis saying to him? I can't remember. But <laughs> You're not Nazi enough, mate. And then he's like, oh, no, I've tried so hard. <laughs> as well as people like Colin, there's uh, Millennial Woes or Colin Robertson. He's got quite close ties to um, the London Forum. He's like an outright vlogger, right? Yeah, the Daily Record described him as a vile vlogger whose racist rants have made him a global internet sensation. And and so he's, he's Scottish, but he's like a big deal in America. Yeah, he spoke at the Heil Trump rally. That kind of shocked the world, really. Yeah, yeah. So he wasn't even the only British person to address it. Uh, Matt Tate, who is another sort of former BNP youth activist who's involved in Western Spring, uh, which runs some of the training camps where neo-Nazis go to learn how to use knives and learn how to use violence. Like he addressed that meeting as well. People like that are trying to build that kind of profile. They're sort of the same kind of profile as Richard Spencer, but I think people in Britain are a bit wiser to it. Why do you think that is? I think it's probably like less tolerance of racism in Britain than there is in the US. Right. I think we're a little bit more critical with our media. We're, we're willing to sort of pull pull people up for those kind of opinions. I mean, like Gary Young's interview, although controversial with Richard Spencer, was I think ultimately fairly successful in very in a very short space of time managing to sort of debunk. Richard Spencer's whole shtick as this intellectual figure when in reality he knows very little uh, and came across as a very open moronic racist um, and that was a British journalist essentially kind of going and doing the job that some American journalists probably should have done a very long time ago um, so I, th I think 
uh, um, you know, if someone like a figure like that tried to pull similar stunts here in the UK, I, I just don't really think they'd last particularly very long. Yeah, I think in America they have less of a tendency than they do in the UK to be suspicious of anyone with a high profile. Like I feel like with people like Richard Spencer, people thought, oh, this guy's getting traction on the internet. We need to treat him as a serious thing and therefore result in puff pieces about the rise of Richard Spencer and like his haircut. Whereas British people are a little bit more suspicious about the idea that a rising profile necessarily means to treat them with anything but contempt. Although the standard did run a Richard Spencer oh, that is true. has a cool haircut puff piece. Why would Britain need a Richard Spencer when we've got Katie Hopkins and Nigel Farage? Yeah, very true. <laughs> because I mean, like even on an age thing, they, those figures still appeal to, to young people, you know, here. It's not even as if like, oh, I don't feel very in touch with someone like Nigel Farage. He's in his 60s or whatever, but it, it doesn't seem to matter. People still seem to be um, enamored by his bullshit. I mean, Katie Hopkins is an interesting figure because she's gone from like, Prentice candidate to, you know, mainstream political like shock jockey commentator, like not that dissimilar to like anyone else writing in the sun, you know, your Rod Liddles or whatever. And then she's got from that to like being involved in Rebel Media, which is a sort of outright media platform from Canada. And I think maybe that's an interesting kind of starting point to talk about how the sort of very extreme ends of this kind of thought relate to the mainstream well it's it's interesting because like i think these figures maybe in the past would have gone okay i'm going to run uh, as a politician now but they see that the media or the or the internet media is a better place for them because they can sort of uh rather than having to rely on an electoral cycle to to get in touch with voters they can just have this platform all the time and a pretty big platform in reality and, and constantly engage in an audience and try and direct sort of the the social conversation ever rightwards. Uh, and I think, you know, they, they've sort of, as stupid as they really are, they, at least they've seen that that's probably a better way to engage with people. It's like Donald Trump's Twitter stream, right? I mean, he's just like living proof of the fact that you don't actually need to pass any laws whatsoever in order to do- completely dominate the news cycle mm. just through the power of your tweets. Yeah, and I suppose like stuff like Rebel, Rebel Media or NK Hopkins, it's like there's less of a need now to like temper your opinions to something that would be acceptable in something like the Daily Mail, which is obviously like a pretty vile publication, but even that can't go like quite as far as these people are going or at least they can't consistently go as far as someone like Katie Hopkins is now going without getting a backlash and losing sponsorship and so on yeah I think like the platforms like Rebel Media uh, and sort of figures like Katie Hopkins Farage and stuff are pulling the discourse to the right but this feels like it's a reaction to sort of broad social trends it's like we're living in a more progressive society it's like people are sort of less happy about racism and misogyny and sort of all those forms of oppression. And it's like the far right are reacting to that. Mm. I think like we are living in a world that's slowly getting better. And it's like the far right is desperate for it to be a bit worse. Well, and you have to look at like the electoral success of Jeremy Corbyn, well, not all, well technically uh, electoral defeat, but like the popularity of a figure like that, uh, drawing lots of young people, uh, which is, you know, an ever-growing problem for the Conservative Party and other right-wing parties. And and yeah, it, it, it's a, it's a symbol of like a progressing society, but younger people getting involved in more left wing political ideas, and yeah, I mean if you can't beat them on the sort of economic arguments of like uh, Corbyn and others, 
then it, you just get involved in these weird identity politics wars on the internet, which is seemingly what the right are obsessed with now. Well, the kind of people that are on the right side of the culture war are the kind of people that you would see on a Football Ads Alliance protest. It's the new By right. right side, you mean the right wing side, <laughs> not the correct side. Yeah. But like, right. So, the, yeah, the FLA, Football Ads Alliance, is an interesting example. It's like one of the sort of largest, I guess, street movements in the UK mm-hmm. over the last few years. They maybe get like 10,000 people on a demo. They're not explicitly right wing. At least, at least they didn't start out being explicitly right wing. They started out as a movement of football supporters against terrorism. Well, and extremism. Extremism. <laughs> and you know, immediately there were sort of critiques that they were maybe ignoring certain types of extremism and falling into a lot of kind of right-wing territory of like, you know, only blaming Muslim extremists and not, you know, uh, Nazi terrorists or whatever. And it seems to have moved on from that kind of question to they seem to have moved to the right fairly openly. Yeah, I've I've not seen them say anything on the internet about far-right terrorism recently. No, they've not mentioned Darren Osborne at all they did initially at the start right um where they were like yeah we're against all forms of extremism they've essentially been radicalized Mm. is is the most accurate way of putting it right it could just be whoever's running their facebook and twitter accounts (laughs) it it might not like i don't think every member is a racist no 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 i think like what they are demanding is racist like wanting internment from Mm -hmm. sort of terror suspects yeah i mean they're they're at pains to sort of distance themselves from being defined as far right basically aren't they yeah well, i think a lot of the far right have realized that people don't like the far right tommy robinson literally drove all the way to swansea to barge into some like online like welsh newspaper because he had uh he disagreed with a reporter styling him as far right i mean jesus christ talk yeah. about like going to lengths to, to sort of distance yourself from a, you know... Like Robinson's a former BNP member that formed the largest far-right street movement <laughs> in Britain. And now he's like, I'm not far-right. Yeah. <laughs> it's just common sense, mate. Most far-right people hate to be described as far-right extremists now. I think that's kind of the idea behind the Football Lads Alliance. I mean, when I first heard about them, the name itself is just engineered deliberately to seem as innocuous as possible. Like, who could argue with football? Who could argue with lads? Who doesn't <laughs> love a football lad? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's kind of how it started out for them, at least. But if their social feeds are anything to go by, like, that is literally just a mask for something way more insidious. Mm. But also, like, yeah, uh, uh, l- the people who turn up to those demos, some of them are people who have been around, like, far-right racist movements for mm. years. But probably the majority, I'd even maybe say like the vast majority, are not themselves racist exactly, but they're existing in this space and in this sort of broader cultural narrative that is like structurally racist. When Vice made a documentary on the Football Lads Alliance, after it came out, on the day it came out, uh, I ran into an old work friend who told me that three of his mates from back home in Southampton, just regular guys, completely, as he puts it, non-racist, attended the FLA march because they genuinely thought that they were attending a football march against extremism. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the danger of something like the FLA. A lot of well-meaning people can just end up, before they know it, attending a march that has essentially cloaked very horrible, poisonous sentiments in a banner of football fans coming together and putting aside their prejudices as firms to come together against this one thing. You know, Mm. I don't think a lot of people are wise enough to the ways in which far-right groups operate nowadays. We were there as well, and the march was... A lot of people were the kind of people you'd see at a football ground, Mm. but then there were loads of far-right activists there as well. Yeah. 
Uh, it's like we were walking around. We saw people from the Pine Mash squad, people from the Southeast Alliance, like people that had been jailed for rioting in Dover, people that had been jailed for like racially abusing people. Like we also bumped into um, a load of Amory Waters supporters, like people that are now forming Generation Identity. It was like everybody on the British far right was there, but it's like yeah, not everybody there is a racist. No. Yeah, like I'm, most of them went. They were all there amongst like a load of just like blokes who like football and hate terrorists. <laughs> so I, th I think what's going to be interesting is what happens after the FLA, like how the FLA forms falls apart. So it's following a very similar trajectory to the one that the EDL took. It's probably going to splinter at some point and more extreme far-right groups are going to emerge from sort of the wreckage of the FLA. Before we move on from that point, is it like a two-way street? Um, Brit the British right is learning from the American right. Is America learning anything from the UK? Yeah, well, Greg Johnson from Countercurrents, which is this alt-right publisher, um, tried to copy the London Forum meetings model in the US. Uh, he tried doing one in New York, um, which was sort of fairly poorly attended, I think. And then and the he, London Forum is this like basically big Nazi meetup. Yeah, it's basically a load of ex-BMP members getting together to talk about esoteric Nazi shit. Didn't they? Wasn't one of the, one of the speeches uh, was Jesus a Nazi? <laughs> yeah, that was by uh, Nick Collistrom, one of the UK's leading Holocaust deniers. Uh-huh. Uh, what was the answer? Was Jesus a Nazi? <laughs> I think there was some uh, line about him coming from Nazareth and that meaning that you could call him a Nazi. Because Nazareth sounds like Nazi-reth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because they shared the first three letters. Johnson organised another sort of forum-esque meeting in Seattle at the home of Nazi ceramicist Charles Kraft. Uh, and that was, uh, yeah, a talk at that was given by a guy from the anti-racist charity Hope Not Hate who had infiltrated the US alt-right through British groups like the London Forum. And so he ends up in America because those links are so strong. Yeah, it's like the US alt-right um, sort of identifies itself as being European. Right. It's like, so they, they look they're at, like ethno, yeah. they're white. And so yeah. they think of like Europe as this yeah, so home of their identity. You know the Defend Europe projects which is where a load of identitarian alt-right activists went out in a boat and tried to stop migrants from being rescued by ngos mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of a disaster because they ended up bringing a load of migrants to the <laughs> to europe yeah i think was it the entire crew uh claimed asylum yeah, yeah where, where did they stop and they tried to claim asylum was it cyprus yeah or sicily or somewhere like yeah, that yeah very odd uh so a lot of people on the u.s alt-right gave financial support to the Defend Europe project. It's like there's a lot of crowdfunding done by Americans to fund that that mission. And it's like, yeah, the the US alt-right wants to support the growth of far-right in Europe. And, and they're also kind of sharing the sort of same talking points, but like, or bizarrely attaching themselves to talking points on issues in in Europe. So they're sort of obsessed with this idea that Muslims are taking over Sweden mm -hmm. and that there are like no go zones in, in London, even though I live in one of those no go zones and I'm fine. Yeah, I've, me too. Yeah, we've not been, you know, murdered by terrorists yet. Um, but yeah, it's like this kind of weird obsession with like issues that exist fairly solely in, in Europe. It's like they don't have the problems that they, they're obsessed with in the US, so they have to find it somewhere else, which is where you, I guess, where you end up with Cal and Robertson and Laura Southern going and making a documentary about what they call white genocide in South Africa. And then a week later, Katie Hopkins doing the same and falling into a K-hole. It's like the problems don't actually exist in the places they're from, so they sort of have to go and, and search for it. Yeah, really seek them out. Yeah, I mean, which kind of... You have to wonder what what the fucking point is. But. <laughs> but I interviewed Katie Hopkins uh, about her sort of move to Revel, 
then she told me that a lot of journalists are like a kid's football team where they all just chase the same ball. And it's like her first story for Rebel is doing something that uh, Lauren Southern and Caitlin Robertson have just done. <laughs> we want all suspected terrorists who are non-British citizens and pose a threat to society to be permanently removed from the country. So you mentioned the sort of seemingly inevitable decline of the FLA and the fallout of that. And I wonder maybe if we can take that to like a broader level, what are we going to see in the next few years from the far right? I think it, it depends on who the government is. It's like if the hard right of the Tory party stay in power and if Jacob Rees-Mogg becomes prime minister, we're probably not going to see a lot of far right activity because they're going to be quite happy with what's going on. It's like if Corbyn becomes prime minister, I think we're going to see a huge resurgence of far right activity. It's like the far right think that Corbyn is an IRA loving terrorist sympathizer. It's like they're going to go apoplectic if he ever gets anywhere near Downing Street. Mm. So you'd see potentially like very large right wing demonstrations against the government, basically. You also have to consider like what happens if uh, Brexit doesn't necessarily go the way that the far right or the right wing in general hope it will. You know, if it if, if sort of Brexit doesn't happen or if we end up with sort of like uh, a soft Brexit, you know, I think a lot of these groups sort of tie themselves to Brexit um, and, and see it as a victory point. And one of the only like real discernible victories they've they sort of see themselves having. And if that's kind of taken away from them, um, I think even if the Tories are in power and they decide to sort of soften up Brexit, or maybe not even go through with it, you could see again you know, more sort of street action uh, from the far right. Um, because they, you know, their, their rhetoric is all about betrayal and traitors, and you know that's also become very mainstream in like Daily Mail front pages, you know, crush the saboteurs and all yeah. that sort of stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I don't even necessarily think it would just be like a far right resurgence. I think you could see a lot of people that would sort of maybe identify themselves as right right wing or to the right of the Tory Party, uh, uh, being sort of feeling like they would come out on the streets if something like Brexit doesn't actually go the way that they had envisaged it would. Although I kind of feel like Brexit at the moment is kind of collapsing into just very confusing technicalities and, you know, points that are just going to completely fly by the average person's head. And I think that in a way, that's what the Tory party is banking on. They're probably going to try and eventually smuggle in a much softer Brexit, knowing that a hard Brexit would torpedo the country, but cloak it in such a way that makes it sound like they got the deal they wanted. I mean, mm. you can kind of see Theresa May trying to do that now. Like she's saying things that literally just don't align with the current reality of the situation, but acting as if she's making a great deal for the country. Mm. But it's also a question of like, will anyone buy that? But also like, there is a sort of difference between a lot of like Brexiteers on the right of the Tory party and like the far right in that um, a lot of Brexiteer Tories want to, they're kind of imperialists basically. They want to open immigration to like the former colonies and like, you know, Asian subcontinent or whatever. And so you bas they're basically against European immigration, but up for the idea of uh, potentially a lot of non-white Im immigration from other places. And obviously if you're like the far right and you've put a lot of faith in Brexit, you're going to be absolutely like wanting to punch a wall about that. Yeah, Brexit isn't going to make Britain a white ethno state. <laughs> yeah. And 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 like the people we're talking some of the people we're talking about will be furious about that. Yeah, I, I think how Brexit plays out is going to impact what the far right does quite significantly. I think the fact that it's even happening now has led to a lot of far right activity sort of dropping. Like there there was a protest a couple like last year I think by the Southeast Alliance which is an EDL splinter group. Uh, and it was demanding that article 50 was uh activated immediately and there are only like 50 people there 
it's like they've been trying to organise around this kind of stuff, and it's like there've been some sort of small scuffles. Like Eddie Izzard had his beret stolen by a National Action member. Like there's a guy who uh, attacked a sort of stop Brexit protest, but there hasn't been a sort of large far right street movement around Brexit. I think yeah, there potentially could be. Like if we have a soft Brexit or if Britain stays in a single market. But if it all goes through and there is a hard Brexit, these people are going to be jubilant. Like they're not going to be taking to the streets. But then would that not sort of embolden them further? Yeah. But just not on the streets. Why would they take to the streets? Like you take to the streets when you're angry about something and you think something needs to change. If the society that you want is being created, it's like you just stay at home. And so it seems like we're either going to see a very angry far right on the streets or a very happy far right <laughs> really like blessed with the, their amazing Brexit. Yeah, he will just gloat online. Looking forward to that. Okay, that's enough of that. Check out all the Hay Week stuff on vice.com if you want more bile, bullshit and bigotry. Thanks to our man James Poulter and thanks of course to Zing and Henry. The British Dream was produced by Sam Bonham at Rethink Audio. See you in two weeks. Until then, stay positive, keep the dream alive. <laughs>